0: Welcome to s cs podcast series, SNC c Critical Insights. My name is Judd Littleton, and I'm a partner in the Litigation Group and co-head of the firm's appellate practice. I'm here with Julia Malkina, also a partner in the Litigation Group. Today, we are continuing our series of podcast supplements to SNC's Supreme Court Business Review, our summary of the decisions from this past term that are most relevant to businesses. You can find the Supreme Court Business Review, as well as all of our podcast episodes once they are released. On SNC's website at www.sulcrom.com.
1: In this episode, we are joined by Julie Jordan and Annie Ostroger, partners in the litigation group and co heads of our labor and employment practice. We will discuss the Supreme Court's recent decisions in Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia, and Comcast v. National Association of African American Owned Media. Julie and Annie will also share their insights on the implications of these decisions for businesses and employment law practitioners.
0: So let's start with the court's decision in Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia. On June 15th, the Supreme Court issued its highly anticipated decision in Bostock, a case that considered whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which forbids employment discrimination because of sex, Applies to discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. In an opinion written by Justice Gorsuch, the court held six to three that taking an adverse employment action against an employee, quote, merely for being gay or transgender, end quote, violates Title VII.
1: To give a bit of background, Bostock was a consolidated decision resolving three separate cases. Bostock, Altitude Expressing versus Zarda, and R.G. and G.R. Harris Funeral Homes, Inc. versus EEOC. In each case, an employer fired an employee based on sexual orientation or gender identity. In Bostock, plaintiff Gerald Bostock was terminated from his position as a child welfare advocate after he joined an LGBTQ recreational softball league. In Zarda, plaintiff Donald Zarda was fired from his position as a skydiving instructor after he noted his sexual orientation, and an RG and GR, plaintiff Amy Stevens, was fired based on her gender identity. The circuit split on whether to allow these claims to proceed. The 11th Circuit concluded that Title VII does not prohibit employers from terminating employees based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Conversely, the 2nd and 6th Circuits concluded that Title VII prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity.
0: The Supreme Court agreed with the Second and Sixth Circuits and concluded that Title VII does prohibit sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. The court began by considering the ordinary public meaning of the relevant text of Title VII at the time it was enacted. The court held that when Congress prohibited discrimination because of sex, that language made an employer liable, quote, so long as the plaintiff's sex, end quote, was one cause of the employment decision. And the court found that to be the case here. The court reasoned that an employer who fires an employee based on sexual orientation or transgender status fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. Accordingly, because sex plays a necessary and undisguisable role in the decision, the plain language of Title VII forbids that action.
1: Importantly, the court emphasized that an employer cannot escape liability by pointing to other factors besides sex that may have contributed to the employment decision. The court framed a simple test. If quote, changing the employee's sex would have yielded a different choice by the employer, the action violates the law. As an example, the court considered two employees, a man and a woman, who were otherwise identical. Both of them were attracted to men. The court reasoned that if the employer fires the male employee for no reason other than the fact that he is attracted to men, the employer discriminates against him for traits or actions it tolerates in his female colleagues.
0: In coming to this conclusion, the court rejected a number of arguments brought by the employers. First. The court rejected the argument that blanket anti-LGBTQ policies do not discriminate based on sex because they treat men and women equally. The court emphasized that Title VII protects individual employees from discrimination and that such a blanket policy would simply result in discrimination against every individual employee who is subject to it.
1: Next, the court explained that because the text of Title VII is clear and unambiguous, Reviewing the statute's legislative history was not warranted. Thus, the argument that few in 1964 would have expected Title VII to apply to anti-LGBTQ discrimination was irrelevant. Finally, the court was also unpersuaded by the fact that Congress had declined to amend Title VII to add sexual orientation as a protected class, and that few federal courts had interpreted Title VII to apply to gender identity and sexual orientation.
0: So, with that overview of the decision, let's turn to our experts here. Annie, could you tell us a bit about the implications of this decision?
2: Thanks, Dad and Julia. I'd be happy to. Most immediately, for employers in states where state law does not currently prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity, employment decisions may now be challenged on this ground under Title VII. Although some states, including New York, already had laws providing protection against discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, several other
1: states had not adopted such protections. In the wake of Bostock, how can employers minimize the risk of litigation?
2: Employers may wish to review their employment policies and procedures in order to confirm that sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination is prohibited and that proper procedures are in place to train employees and to prevent any discrimination on this ground. For example, employers could consider replacing any gendered policies, such as sex-specific dress codes and grooming standards, with gender and sex-neutral policies. If employers maintain gendered or sex-specific policies, they should be able to justify those policies with a bona fide occupational qualification or legitimate business interest.
3: Thanks, Annie. And to further build an inclusive culture, employers could consider implementing training to integrate diversity and inclusion into day-to-day operations and also train employees on awareness and the importance of protecting LGBTQ workers. Even if one puts aside the legal risk, The protection of LGBTQ workers can be good for business by not only retaining and attracting key talent, but some companies expect that their vendors provide diverse teams and provide for such protections.
0: Annie, some employers have stated that their discriminatory policies are based on their religious beliefs. Does Bostock settle that issue, or do you expect that to be subject to continuing litigation?
2: Yes, this has been an interesting issue that's been in the news and in the court cases. The court specifically declined to address whether Title VII's requirements may require some employers to violate their religious convictions, including whether the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RFRA, of 1993 might supersede Title VII's commands in appropriate cases. As a result, we will likely see cases in the coming terms examining how this ruling interacts with several doctrines designed to protect religious liberty interests, including Title VII's exemption of religious organizations, the First Amendment's prohibition on the application of employment discrimination laws to ministers for religious institutions, and RIFRA itself.
0: And Julie, do you think Bostock will have implications on other statutes that prohibit discrimination based on sex?
3: Chad, yeah. the court's opinion does expressly limit its reach to workplace discrimination under Title VII, perhaps reducing the likelihood that the decision will have an impact in other areas involving different statutes that prohibit discrimination based on sex such as Title IX. The court specifically noted that it was not addressing questions about, quote-unquote, sex-segregated bathrooms, locker rooms, and dress codes. That being said, the decision does open the door to challenges to interpretations of other federal anti-discrimination statutes that prohibit discrimination based on sex. Indeed, Justice Alito wrote a dissent predicting that the court's decision is, quote, virtually certain to have far-reaching consequences and attached an appendix listing dozens of laws that may be effective, including the Fair Housing Act and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And he noted that health care benefits in particular may, quote-unquote, emerge as an intense battleground. Thank you, Julie.
1: We'll now move to the Supreme Court's decision in Comcast versus National Association of African-American-Owned Media. In Comcast, the court considered the causation standard for race discrimination claims under Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Section 1981 guarantees all persons the same right to make and enforce contracts as is enjoyed by white citizens. And that's a direct quote from the statute. Plaintiff Entertainment Studios Network, or ESM, is an African-American-owned television network operator. ESN argued that Comcast violated Section 1981 when citing lack of demand for ESN's programming. It declined to carry ESN's channels. The issue before the Supreme Court was what causation standard applies to ESN's claim. The court unanimously held that a plaintiff bringing a race discrimination claim under Section 1981 must show that race was the but-for cause of the plaintiff's injury.
0: Examining Section 1981's text, history, and structure, the court found no reason to depart from the, quote, general rule that a plaintiff bears the burden of showing that race was a but-for cause of the injury, and that that burden itself remains constant throughout the lawsuit. The court expressly declined to import into Section 1981 the causation test from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which we just discussed for Bostock. The test for Title VII requires a plaintiff to show only that discrimination was a, quote, motivating factor in a challenged employment decision. But the court emphasized differences in the text and history of Title VII as compared to Section 1981 and found no evidence that Congress meant them to incorporate the same causation standard.
1: Julie and Annie, can you share with us some of the implications of Comcast? Yes, yeah, so
2: first, under Comcast, Plaintiffs bringing claims under Section 1981 will be required to show but for causation, which is a highly exacting standard, at every stage of the litigation, including the pleading stage.
3: And although plaintiffs may still pursue claims for race discrimination under Title VII with its more plaintiff-friendly motivating factor test, Section 1981 provides plaintiffs with several procedural and remedial advantages over Section 7.
2: That's right. For example, Section 1981 has no requirement that an employer have a minimum of 15 employees, which is a requirement under Title 7. And while Title VII carries a time limitation of 180 or 300 days for a plaintiff to file his or her initial complaint, depending on whether the discriminatory conduct is also prohibited by a state or local law, Section 1981 does not specify a statute of limitations. Depending on the nature of the claim, courts apply a four-year statute of limitations or the appropriate statute of limitations under state law which is often several years.
3: Finally, Section 1981 permits plaintiffs to seek compensatory and punitive damages without statutory limitation, whereas damages under Title VII are subject to certain caps.
2: Right. And in the wake of Comcast, plaintiffs bringing Section 1981 claims have a high bar to alleging and proving causation which may result in employer defendants obtaining more pretrial dismissals of
3: Section 1981 claims. As a result, plaintiffs may rely more heavily on Title VII as a vehicle for asserting race discrimination claims, foregoing the potential advantages of Section 1981.
2: Of course, Congress could always act to amend Section 1981 and displace the court's interpretation, as it did with Title VII's causation standard in the Civil Rights Act of 1991. Legislative advocacy efforts by civil rights groups are likely to focus on this
0: end. Thank you both for that. Are there any significant questions that this opinion left open for future litigation?
3: Yes, Doug. Comcast raised, but left for another day, the question of whether Section 1981 protects the right to equal contractual outcomes or an equal contracting process. This unresolved question is likely to be litigated in future race discrimination suits. I agree, Julie,
2: and litigants taking the position that Section 1981 guarantees an equal contracting process will have at their disposal Justice Ginsburg's Comcast concurrence, in which she urged against limiting Section 1981 to outcomes, reasoning that, quote, the language of the statute covers the entirety of the contracting process, end quote. Otherwise, she explained, a defendant could discriminate under Section 1981, quote, so long as it occurs in advance of the final contract formation decision.
0: All right, Julie, I'm going to put you on the spot. What is your key takeaway here from Comcast?
3: Okay, Judd, I think the Comcast decision largely perpetuates the status quo. Although Comcast clarified the causation standard that applies to Section 1981 claims, the majority of courts already applied the but-for standard to Section 1981. Employers, however, should be aware of applicable state laws that may afford broader protections against race discrimination. By way of example, in California, the Civil Rights Act only requires plaintiffs to show that race played a role in the alleged discrimination, not that it was the sole reason for it. In light of Comcast more states may pass similar laws to lower the causation standard for plaintiffs alleging discrimination based on race.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Julie and Annie. That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening to our Supreme Court Business Review podcast series. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.soulcrom.com.